reading this morning is going to be taken from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. That's the book of John, chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. This is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So guys, we'll just pray before Mark comes to speak to us. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are God Almighty. Father, that you are the creator of heaven and earth. And Lord, not one thing in your creation is outside your control. Father, we just confess at times when we are so small-minded and limited perspective, Father, that, God, we limit you in your power. But, Father, I pray this morning that you would forgive us of our sin. Lord, that through Mark, that you would reveal to us the wonders of your word. Father, as we read, God, that Jesus was obedient in order to glorify you. God, we thank you for his humility, Lord, that he walked the path of suffering in our place and that God, that he died the death that we deserve. But Lord, he rose again, claiming victory over sin and death. And I pray now this morning, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, that you would just open our eyes to see this in your word. God, that even as we prepare for Easter and all our outreach events, Lord, that you would use these as times to save. God, that we would focus on spreading the good news of your gospel. Lord, that many in this town would hear and come to know Jesus as their saviour this Easter. Father, we just thank you that we here can gather as your people in freedom. Father, we just thank for our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world today. Lord, we pray for those in Ukraine. We pray for those who have fled for their lives, Lord, and are now seeking refuge elsewhere. I pray, Father, that in those neighbouring countries of Poland and and um, Father, that you would do a work through your people. Lord, welcome these refugees into homes where Jesus is proclaimed as Lord. We even pray now for us, Father, that though we sit further from Ukraine in location, Lord, that they would not be far from our thoughts and prayers. We pray for those, Lord, who are trapped in cities, that, Father, that, that Lord, that you would make a miraculous way for these guys to escape. And ultimately, Father, we just pray that you would resolve the conflict, that God, that you are a Father who redeems and restores, and we just pray that over our world here today, Lord. And God, we just pray for um, Mark as he comes to speak to us. We just thank you for him and Emma and Willow, and pray, Lord, that you would just give him the words to say, just anoint his message this morning, Lord, so that your glory would be seen and heard by all. And Father, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, good morning, Cornerstone Church. It is a joy to be with you, uh, sharing in the Word again this morning. Thank you, Steph, for reading the Word of God there for us. Thank you for Marcus. Lead us in worship as well. Let me pray for us before we go any further in our time of worship. Well, Father God, we come before you as a ransomed and redeemed people who have been part of this great plan that you have unfolded through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we come through the empty hands of faith and we thank you. We glorify your name, Lord, for your goodness towards us. Lord, I, I just echo everything that has been prayed and I want to add what, what has just been on my heart, Lord. We, we are approaching John 17, Father. We are looking at a prayer within the Trinity, a dialogue between the Father and the Son. Lord, how can we even attempt to unpack such a glorious mystery without your help, Lord? But Lord, I pray that you would focus our minds now this morning, God. I pray that you would help us press in and not shy away from, from seeking to know you more. Because we know that in you, God, is, is, is joy, is, is ultimate purpose, ultimate satisfaction, God. In you is the forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life. So Lord, what else would we spend our life pursuing but knowing you more? So, Lord, I ask that that would be uh, made possible in this meeting now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are, as Steph has helpfully read, in the beginning of John chapter 17, we're in a passage this morning that is unparalleled in Scripture. This is what theologians call the real Lord's Prayer. Al Mohler, he's a Southern Seminary guy. I think he's still present. There, he remarks that in, for example, Matthew 6, 19 to 13, the, the, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, our Father, heart in heaven, that is the Lord teaching us to pray. That is a model for prayer. But of course, it's not a prayer Jesus had to pray because it mentions repentance and Jesus was sinless. Here in John 17 this morning, this is Jesus praying. This is in the truest sense, the Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer, particularly these first five verses, I want us to see something here. We see on full display the glory of God. In fact, is that, is that me, John? Do you want me to? Sure. Let's see. Is that better? Good stuff. Good. Sorry for that. So we see on full display here the glory of God. And in fact, we see more than that. I've borrowed uh, the title of a book by John Piper that I dusted off in preparation for this sermon that describes these first five verses. Of course, Sarah and Samuel O. John Piper, well, we see on full display here God's passion for his glory. I've been so excited, actually, about this Lord's Day. I said to Emma yesterday evening as we were preparing dinner, Emma, tomorrow we have the joy of, and the privilege of, of being numbered among the saints of God in, in corporate and communal worship. And tomorrow we have the joy, all of us, of gathering around the Word of God and focusing on the reality of God's glory. 
it has excited me, and that is the clear theme of our text this morning. Glory is mentioned five times, and we particularly get to see this, which has been a wonderful experience uh, preparing this in my study this morning. We get to see how God's glory reaches its, its, uh, its apex in the dealings towards mankind in the events that are about to unfold through the suffering and and the death and the resurrection of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we we get to ask and answer the question this morning, how is it that God's glory reaches its greatest manifestation in, in history through the work of the cross? And then we get to celebrate that this morning as the family of God, which is a wonderful thing. Now you'll see, verse 1 begins when Jesus had spoken these words. We did heavy groundwork on this last week, uh, and we know that our Lord's prayer to the Father here comes at the conclusion of what is known as the farewell discourse. That spanned from John chapter 13 right through the end of John chapter 16. We, we've seen how the, 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 the night progressed from the upper room right through the abandoned streets of Jerusalem towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we pick up our passage here and jump right in at the rest of verse 1. And it says this. He says, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Well, let's deal with the first part of that verse. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, this phrase is significant. We can can brush over these phrases, but this is Jesus actually taking up the posture of prayer. The psalmist writes in uh, Psalm 123, I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in the heavens. We see Jesus do this in the Gospels, Mark 7, looking up to heaven. He sighed and he said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. He did it before he blessed the bread and the feeding of the 5,000 lifted up his eyes to heaven. So Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven in prayer and he delivers this petition to God God the Father. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is an astounding prayer. This is an astounding moment. This verse is is what motivated my prayer before we even got into this. This, We're we're dealing with the Trinity here, as you'll see in a moment. There is only one person who could enter into the presence of God and pray such a prayer. Whenever we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about something so radiant, so pure, so powerful that the cherubim cover their eyes and feet before the Lord and say, holy, holy, holy. I was so encouraged as we sang that this morning. It wasn't something that Marcus and I communicated. I was so encouraged by that because that's what's in in front of us here. Let me bring you to some scriptures in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6 writes that he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah was, he was almost consumed at the sight that he bore witness to. And he was reduced to saying, I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, this prophet of God recognized the true reality of who he was in comparison to God's glory. He was utterly unclean in comparison to such such purity and, and holiness and glory. 
It says that God's robe filled the temple. Kings in the ancient East, they would have sewed the cloaks of conquered kings onto the the train of their own robe. And obviously, the longer the, the, the robe, the more glorious and powerful they appeared. The train of God's robe, miles upon miles upon miles upon miles, layered upon layer upon layer, filled the temple. This was a a picture of his incomparable glory, of his unmatched power and his unconquerable position of authority over all material and immaterial creation. And that's important for what we're coming to. Now, here's why only Jesus could pray that prayer and actually have it answered. God knows even better than we do as his followers this morning that none can match his glory. And therefore, he is rightly so fiercely protective of his glory. He says, John Piper says in his book, he is passionate for his glory. He is zealous for his glory. Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I do not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. There would be, if we were to direct the glory that was due God to anything else other than God, it would be idol worship. It would not be acceptable because God alone is due the glory. So we, let's think about the, the gravity behind Jesus' prayer here. He's praying, Father, this incomparably glorious God, Jesus calls Father. Not as we do. We call uh, God Father because of the gift of salvation. We are grafted into the family of God. We are given that right by Jesus. Jesus is praying this by complete natural right. He's praying as the second member of the Trinity. And really, the, the true magnitude of what is occurring here is, is lost, and it's, 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 it's hard to really communicate and deal with. But the church has rightly contended for, for two millennia that that Scripture clearly teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. We can never lose that. That's, that's essential. It's fundamental to the Christian faith. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-active in creation and providence and redemption, and co-eternal. One God, three persons. And we're seeing this prayer between God the Father and the God the Son here. The, the reality of that is it's beyond the full grasp of human comprehension. We can see dimly, but not in full. We, we humbly have to acknowledge the truth that we are not God, that His, His ways are, are higher than ours, and we leave it there. We, we don't go down that road. Isaac Newton tried to explain the, the Trinity and it ended in heresy because we can't, we can't unravel and put God under a microscope and say, ah, this is God, uh, right down to the, the finest T. So what is this verse saying? What is verse 1 showing us about Christ? We come to this and we see that he's praying, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Well, is Jesus just one of the sons of Israel? Is he just a prophet? Is he Elijah raised from the dead? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not if, not if he prays, Father, glorify your Son, and, the God, and God the Father actually does it. And God actually does it. God does not share his glory with another, and therefore this verse shows us the divinity of Christ. And here he prays, the hour has come, glorify your Son, 
that the Son may glorify you. Well, for the disciples, this is nothing short of a glimpse into all that history has been building up to. They are witnessing Jesus praying that God would glorify him in the moments ahead so that in turn Jesus could glorify the Father. There's this act of mutual glorification occurring between the Father and the Son, and that being be quite difficult for us to understand, so, so let me approach it with you guys this way. The hour has come. Speaking of what lies ahead, Jesus, he has in view here everything that, that has occurred in, in his earthly ministry up until now and what lies ahead in his suffering and his death and resurrection. In other words, I think that Jesus has the entirety of his mission in mind here, his incarnation uh, to a, a living, perfect uh, life on our behalf, to his atonement on the cross for our sins, having fulfilled the law, and I think, he, well, I know he has in mind his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the Father's right hand. That's what verses 4 and 5 tell us. We don't have time to properly handle verses of 4 and 5, so, so let me graft them in now to help explain verse 1. Look at what verse Uh, Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So therefore, this mutual glory between the Father and the Son is going to work out in the following way. Jesus will be glorified as the Christ who was incarnated into the world and who obediently carried out the will of the Father. That's how Jesus will be glorified. He's going to be glorified as the Christ who was incarnated into the world and who obediently carried out the will of the Father. And God the Father would be glorified in Jesus uh, because in Christ, the Father would exhibit and he would extend his great mercy to mankind by making a way whereby they could be forgiven of their sins and, and they could be given the offer and gift of everlasting life. And as we'll see shortly, a relationship with God, which colors all of that in the best way conceivable. So Jesus would be eternally glorified as the risen, the conquering, obedient Savior who endured the agony of the cross for the joy that was set before him. And the Father would be glorified for his great and merciful plan of salvation that would deal with the problem of of sin and death in the world. And note this, church, he would do it in such a way that maximizes the joy of the church. (laughs) That's a wonderful reality. God could have handled sin another way that, that would have rightly reflected his justice and, and wiped mankind out for one, once and for all because man in their natural state before God is, is a rebel. So God, uh, right, he, he will rightly deserve eternal punishment and separation from God for those wicked deeds against God. But, but, 
God does not handle the problem of sin in that way alone for a couple of reasons. One that would not satisfy his whole character and his whole nature, and therefore it would not glorify him as much as the the, the work of the cross would. So, So, God will extend justice to the wicked for their sins, yes, but God, he was compelled by his very nature to extend mercy and grace and compassion even towards his enemies. That's what Scripture says we are outside of Christ. And so how would God achieve this? Well, we know the answer to that. It is the work of the cross. I was reading the Sovereign Grace music uh, rendition of the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus This Morning in my study. And it just wonderfully illustrates the point. So I added it in my sermon. It says this. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased. Where justice and mercy embraced. What a thought. And all of this, and so much more actually, but all of this and more is it's encapsulated in Jesus' prayer, glorify me that I may glorify you. And of course, as Jesus knew, this prayer would be answered. I want us to be clear here. It is assumed, it's not, it's not hoped by Jesus that this prayer would be answered. He was merely communicating to the Father what lay ahead and for their glory to be eternally culminated at the cross. And this is exactly what, uh, what we see has happened this is what's happening now since, since announcements and Marcus began uh, leading us in worship. We are glorifying God in worship uh, for what he has done in our lives. We rejoice that Philippians 2 verses 8 to 9 calls our Savior the, the humble and the obedient Savior who became obedient to the point of death. Even the death on a cross And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Likewise, we rejoice in the great mercy of God the Father reaching us in Christ Jesus. And so we say with the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we sing, see the Father's plan unfold. We've seen it. God has opened our eyes to it. We look back in hindsight now, and we realize that this hour that was at hand, that the Gospels have been building up to, the first time Jesus' hour is mentioned is in John 2, This hour that was now at hand was about to bring about the magnification of God's glory for all eternity. And incredibly, this act would be this act would be the the catalyst of, of worship towards God from us for all eternity. In the year 1750, a certain preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, a great influence on the life of John Piper, he began writing a dissertation called 
the end for which God created the world. Here's a quote from that dissertation which, which illustrates what's going on here and what I'm trying to say here. I've slightly modernized the language. It's not an exact quote. God created the world first that His glory might be magnified in the universe and second that Christ ransomed people from all times and all nations would rejoice in God above all things. Let me say it one more time for those who are taking notes. God created the world first that His glory might be magnified in the universe. And second, that Christ's ransom people from all times and all nations would rejoice in God above all things. That is what is in focus in the Lord's prayer here. This, this is an, a, a glimpse into eternity past for the disciples who are witnessing this prayer and for us. It's a glimpse to what God had planned before Genesis 1 that God would be glorified in the universe by a ransom people from all times and all nations who would rejoice in Him above all things. Sure, God is glorified in His act of creation. He absolutely is. Yes, He's glorified in His acts of providence. But ultimately, the, the apex of God's glorification would come from the Father's plan to save all those who would believe out of a, a lost and sinfully depraved and dying and even evil world. And the Son's execution of that plan by His willing death on the cross in our place uh, is where Jesus gets the glory for that as well. So everything in history, I want us to, to grasp this. Everything in history from... Every minuscule molecule that, that is part of upholding the fabric of our universe together, right through to every political appointment, as we've seen with Pontius Pilate. Every empire that's ever rose and fell, to every word written in the Bible, and, and every work God has ever done in history has built up to this hour. That Jesus prays now has come. Where God would be glorified for all that he has accomplished for mankind. Galatians 4 and 4 says, When the fullness of time had came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, or, or, or by their own sin condemned by the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That time had now come where, where God's glory would be fully exhibited to the world. And as John Piper wonderfully writes in his book, God's Passion for His Glory, we as the church come to this incredible realization that the exhibition of God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls is one thing. The exhibition of God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls are one thing. They're part of the same plan. That hour which had now come and the passion of our Lord would achieve both God's glory and our deepest joy. Just like we heard last week in John 16 where Jesus says, you, you will sorrow now, but your sorrow will ultimately turn to joy because of what I am doing. 
One is a consequence of the other. You, you can't have one without the other. That's how God has designed his plan of salvation. That's why we glorify him this morning. Now, there's a lot in that, I, and I appreciate that, and I'm, I've been actually so encouraged by your attention through what I found is, was the hard part of the prep in this sermon, uh, and I thank you for that, brothers and sisters. But there's a lot in that, so let me wrap this one up in, in a succinct sentence, maybe not so much a phrase before going on. What is in focus in verse 1 is Jesus' prayer that God's plan for the universe would now come to fruition in these next few hours, namely that he would be glorified. And what a thought that God expresses and, and carries out his passion to be glorified in a way that maximizes our joy if we trust in him alone through the empty hands of faith for salvation. So let's explore that, okay? Let's, let's go into these next two verses and spend the rest of our time dwelling on that. How is it that God would be glorified in what lay ahead? Let's read verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Well, brothers and sisters, the Word of God could not be any clearer here. Our Lord Jesus Christ could not be any clearer in His expression. Let's pay attention to the words used here. Christ has authority. It's Susian, literally over all flesh. Sarkos is the word used here. Well, the Greek word for authority, atsusian, refers to a supreme mastery over all flesh, a supreme mastery. It also carries with it this nuanced idea that Christ has rightful authority, much like we are subject to the laws and rightful authority of this land. Christ, in the greatest way, has rightful authority. He has supreme authority over all flesh. And again, that word flesh is kind of lost on our our modern ears. Well, the Greek word is sarkos, and it literally means all humankind, all nature. It actually means all materiality. But I, I think that the focus here is that he's, he's master over humankind. I'm not saying that the focus over all materiality is not here. I, I think, I, I just think that he's bringing in the focus, the human condition, and what he's going to achieve for the human condition. But he is he's literally master over all materiality. It was Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian and prime minister, that aptly wrote this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which the risen Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which the risen Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He rightfully owns it. One day every knee will bow to that authority, whether in Christ or outside 
of Christ. And, and that point is going to, it's going to be so important for our theme of God's glory and so important for, for driving home the reality behind these next words uh, here in verse 2. Look with me. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This casts our memories back to John 6 and, and that great passage where Jesus, after he declares himself to be the bread of life, he says, all, the Father that has, all that the Father has given him, he will not cast out. So in other words, to try and compact this down, if we can, into a digestible uh, sentence, uh, Jesus would glorify the Father by imparting eternal life to the, the people God uh, promised Jesus before the foundations of the world. That's, that's what Ephesians 1 says. It's, it's hard to grasp. Jesus would glorify the Father through this act of imparting eternal life, which is authority to do to the people God promised him before the foundation of the world. And the way in which Christ would achieve eternal life for them is by dealing with the problem of sin in their lives. Jesus would make a way whereby God's justice and mercy could truly be satisfied and the sinner could walk free and forgiven and step into the joy of everlasting life. And that way was Calvary, where Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless Savior, died in the place of the believer. Now let's take that, that principle, okay, that, that Jesus has been given a people which Ephesians 1, among many other passages of Scripture, clearly teach. And these people were given to him before the foundations of the world. And let's think about the reason why Christ's death and resurrection serve as the, the apex of God's glorifying work in all of history. Scripture is clear that this is because of what the work of the cross achieved for the church. Think about this, brothers and sisters. What was, what was the most, one of the most prominent themes of Jesus' teaching ministry in the Gospels? Well, let me give you a couple of verses. Luke 4, 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Mark 1, 14 to 15, Jesus came in the Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That word basileia, kingdom, it's, it's repeated 162 times in the gospel. It's just bursting from the gospel. So the scriptures say, Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the towns and places he went. It seems even when Jesus performed miracles, he was focused on telling people the good news of the kingdom of God in which he would reign as king. It is clear that the will of the Father was to, to give Jesus a people who would live with him in his eternal kingdom and that everyone in that number, that is everyone who believes the gospel, would be secured by this hour that was now at hand, namely Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The good news of the gospel was, was not just that we would have our sins forgiven. The good news of the gospel was not just that we would have everlasting life. 
the good news was that this would bring about a relationship with God whereby that eternal life could be maximally enjoyed. These verses go on to say in verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. That word again in the Greek, gnosko, know, it doesn't exclusively refer to our intellectual knowledge of God. It goes so much deeper. The word is so much more forceful in its expression than that. This word implies an intimate fellowship with God, of knowing and experiencing Him in our lives. It involves actually knowing God as a person, not just knowing about Him in the way that we know our neighbors 10 miles down the road, but knowing Him in intimate fellowship, experiencing Him in your life, walking with Him in life, believing in Him and following Him. And and also, it says that, that, that eternal life is found in coming to know His Son, the access point towards knowing God in this way. That's key. We can only know God in that way through Christ. And here's where the the Trinity is at work once again. The Scriptures are very clear that this realization of who God is, it's only made possible by the regenerating work of the third person of the Trinity, of the Holy Spirit. That's what Titus 3 and 5 says. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Ghost. It's the the Holy Spirit that illuminates our eyes to the truth of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And this is why I believe so firmly and unresolutely in the preaching of the Word of God, and namely that the preaching of the Word of God will work. God says in 1 Corinthians, He will save those through the, the, the message preached. I can't create a single anxious thought. But God's Word and this living and active Word in the Holy Spirit can save souls and open their eyes to the glorious riches of the gospel hidden in Christ Jesus. That's why we bring our unsaved loved ones to this event that's going to be happening at the yard. It's not us. It's not the speaker. It's God. We preach that knowing this is eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. And we preach that God will build his kingdom and that kingdom will be made up of a thankful people. It was at this point in my preparation that I realized I actually needed two sermons for the first five verses at least. But you can cut me some slack. Thomas Manton wrote 45 sermons on this chapter. But I realized that I really needed to... to, another sermon to bring out the, what is happening in this chapter, at least. But instead, we're just going to have to look at the exit and begin wrapping this up, because that was heavy this morning, and I've been encouraged by how much you have listened. So, so let's just celebrate the truth of this Scripture, okay? Believer, if you know Him this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then on His authority, which is unchallenged and unmatched in in all existence, you possess eternal life and a bottomless ocean of joy awaits you on the new earth. That's the reality. Because of what Jesus has done for us, there's coming an inevitable day when 
we will stand and we'll hear scores of saints echoing the thunderous chorus of praise of, to God, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are truly filled with your glory. And each person who stands in that great multitude who gets to enjoy the presence of God in their midst for all eternity will be there solely by the blood of Jesus Christ. They will be there only by what Jesus has done for them on the cross. They will be there dressed in robes of his righteousness that he has imparted onto us willingly through the work of the cross. Praise God. Praises of that place. Could you imagine? It will unquestionably drown out the greatest moments of worship we have ever experienced in our short tenure here on earth. I mean, think about it. This, the, the kingdom of God is going to be filled with believers from, from all times and all nations, all acutely aware of how they came to be in such a place and all in absolute love with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That's billions upon billions of people. There are seven billion people alive in the world today. That number is expected to grow to about nine billion in 2045. The Population Reference Bureau estimates that about 107 people have ever lived. They estimate that for every person alive, there are 15 souls that have passed into eternity. They didn't word it that way, but that's the reality. One person alive, there are 15 people passed into eternity. Could you imagine standing in the presence of, a, of even a fraction of that number? Imagine saying, among a million people worship to God. Imagine a billion Imagine 80 billion Christians saved by the humble king who for the joy set before him died in their place and endured the cross. We have no idea the multitude that will be there. But we do know this, and it's worth celebrating this morning. More than anything, if you're a believer, if you have heard Jesus' words in the gospel, that as many as believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, and you have laid hold of that in faith, then you will be in this kingdom forever. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is why God is passionate about his glory. And this is why we should follow our Savior Jesus in being passionate about his glory. Because in our sinfulness, he showed us amazing and I just want to say this before I close in a benediction and hand over to Marcus. If you're here this morning and God has allowed you the, the grace of another day, the grace of hearing the gospel and being among his people, I, I would not want to, you to leave here without knowing that God is offering all of this to you also. If you'd only repent of your sin and believe in him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be in that number. And so, church, this is great cause for celebration today. Let this reality encourage you today that God's glory has reached his apex through what he has done in our lives. He has shown amazing grace, and he deserves all the glory. Let me pray for us the benediction from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. Now to the one who is able to do beyond all measure 
more than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.